Real repentance is a willingness to make real changes. Now the outward sign of that repentance was a baptism of repentance. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of Jesus' Baptism of Repentance. Think about this. Christ Jesus was baptized with a baptism that had to do with sin, repentance, and forgiveness. But if Jesus was sinless, why was he baptized? Well, according to the Bible, it was part of his substitution for all who would ever believe in him. On the cross, he paid the full penalty of God's justice for every sin every believer has ever committed or ever will. And through his baptism, he provided the substitutionary repentance. Today, you'll discover more about how Christ accomplished this remarkable act and how you are to respond. Let's join Tom Pennington right now for more on The Word Unleashed. There are two possibilities here as to why John refused to baptize Jesus. One of them was that he still didn't know Jesus was the Messiah before the baptism. He didn't know until after Jesus was baptized and the Spirit came down upon him, in which case he's still refusing him. Why? He says, I need to be baptized by you. So if this is true, then what John is saying is this, listen, I know you, you're my cousin, and I know you to be a far holier man than I am. That's one possibility. The other, and many commentators would say that at some point there in that whole interchange, even before the baptism, God made it obvious to John that Jesus, his cousin, was in fact the Messiah, and therefore he refused and said, no, I shouldn't be baptizing you, you should be baptizing me. Regardless, I want you to notice verse 15. But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So John baptized Jesus. We're going to come back to Jesus' answer in just a few minutes. But go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, and again, look at how Mark puts it. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. In those simple, straightforward words, Mark describes one of the most important events in Jesus' life. Jesus was baptized. He was immersed. He was plunged into the Jordan River in John's baptism of repentance, proselyte baptism for Jews to prepare for the coming of Messiah. That's the baptism of Jesus by John. Now that brings us to the second part of this passage in verses 10 and 11, the testimony to Jesus by God. We've seen the human side, the actual event. Now we see God's testimony to what's happening here. Verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water, that reinforces the idea that both Jesus and John had been in the Jordan and that John had plunged Jesus beneath the water. And Luke tells us that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he was praying. And as he was praying, three dramatic things occurred. The heavens opened above him, 
the Spirit of God descended onto him, and the voice of God spoke to him. Now, the reason those things are important is because in Jewish thinking, all three of those would be true of the Messiah. There's a document written 200 years before Christ called the Testament of Levi. It's not a biblical document at all. But listen to the the Jewish expectation. The heavens will be opened, and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac. And the glory of the Most High shall burst forth upon him, and the spirit of understanding and sanctification shall rest upon him. My point in reading that is saying that was what was in the Jewish mind and thinking when they thought about Messiah coming. So in light of that, let's look then at these three signs. First of all, we're told that the heavens opened above him. Verse 10, he saw the heavens opening. He is Jesus. Matthew tells us John also saw. And since Jesus was baptized when everybody else was being baptized, then there were probably others who witnessed this as well. The Greek word that's translated opening is the word from which we get our English word schism. It means to divide or to tear. Jesus and John and probably the others who were there saw the heavens torn open. Mark uses this word in two places. Here at Jesus' baptism for the skies being torn open and the other places in chapter 15 at Jesus' death when the veil in the temple is torn. Both of them supernatural events designed to serve as supernatural testimony to Jesus as the Son of God. In one case, God tore the heavens. In another case, He tore the veil before the Holy of Holies. The heavens opened above Him. The second significant sign that occurred is the Spirit descended into Him. The Spirit descended into him. Notice what Mark says in verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now there's something strange about that. Notice he saw the Spirit. Now a Spirit by definition is invisible, right? I mean you don't see a Spirit. It's a Spirit. In John chapter 3, Jesus says the Spirit is like the wind. You don't see the Spirit. You simply see the effects, the results of the Spirit's presence. So the Spirit was invisible. And yet here, He saw the Spirit. The Spirit could have descended on Jesus without being seen. The same thing could have happened with no visible indication whatsoever. But all three synoptics make a point of telling us that the Spirit manifested Himself in a visible form. The accounts say he descended as or like a dove. Now, there are two possibilities for what that means. One of them is he descended like a dove in manner. That is, he hovered over Jesus, like that picture of the Spirit in Genesis 1, hovering over the waters in creation. That's one possibility. I don't think that's the correct one, though. The other one is that he was like a dove in shape or form. In other words, the Holy Spirit took on the appearance of a dove. I I think that is to be preferred because of how Luke describes it in Luke 3.22. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. In other words, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in a visual image resembling a dove. Now, obviously... 
he appeared visibly for everybody else to understand certain things. The question is why? Why did the Spirit appear on this occasion? First of all, he appeared to testify to who Jesus was. We know that because remember John was told, you'll know it's the Messiah when you see the Spirit descending on him like a dove, John 1. So the Spirit's descent identified Jesus for who he really was. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. Secondly, the Spirit appeared to empower Jesus for ministry. Mark literally says the Spirit descended into him. John 1 describes it as remaining on him. The Holy Spirit lighted on him, remained on him, and rested on him. Why? Well, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rested on men to give them power for their assigned roles. Mostly it was for kings, for priests, and prophets. Well, you'll remember that the Messiah was to fulfill all three of those roles. He was to be a king, a priest, and a prophet. And so the Spirit prophesied in the Old Testament that He, the Spirit of God, would rest on the Messiah in a unique way. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, speaking of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, God says, Behold my servant, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him. Isaiah 61, 1, here the Messiah himself is speaking, and he says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So the Holy Spirit came to empower Jesus for ministry. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit came to to initiate Jesus' ministry. It's interesting in Acts chapter 1, when they're talking about replacing Judas, They say it has to be somebody who was with Jesus and saw him from his baptism. Why? Because that marked the initiation of his ministry. Jesus' ministry officially began with this public act. So the Holy Spirit descended into him. There's a third dramatic sign that took place that day, and that is the voice of God spoke to him. Verse 11, And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. I think we get the idea that God spoke audibly from heaven all the time in Scripture. The truth is that's that's not right. Look in the Old Testament, you'll see just a handful of times when God audibly spoke. In the New Testament, Only three times during the ministry of Jesus did God speak audibly. Once at Jesus' baptism, at his transfiguration, and then John chapter 12 tells us during the Passion Week. In those times, only those who truly believed not only heard the voice, but understood the voice, according to John chapter 12. So here is one of three times during the ministry of Jesus that God audibly speaks from heaven. Now we know it's God the Father because the voice comes from heaven. It refers to Jesus as the Son, and the other members of the Trinity are already present in this scene. You have Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Mark and Luke says the voice spoke to Jesus, You are my Son. 
Matthew says the voice spoke to John and probably to the others who were there, this is my son. Why? Because Matthew understood that this wasn't happening primarily for Jesus. On another occasion, Jesus explained in John chapter 12, verse 30, when this was during the Passion Week, God spoke from heaven and Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. At Jesus' baptism, God spoke to Jesus, but clearly not primarily for Jesus, but for others. Why? I love the way R.T. France puts it. He says, this voice comes out of the heavens, and the words spoken leave no room for doubt that the speaker is God himself. These words are therefore of the highest importance. Whatever the verdicts which people in Mark's gospel may reach on the question of who Jesus is, the reader is left with no option. When the identity of Jesus is declared explicitly from the highest possible authority. In other words, when you hear God speak from heaven and say, this is my son, there's not a lot of question left. Now notice what the father said to Christ. First of all, he said, you are my beloved son. Beloved here is used obviously not only in the sense of love, I think, but in the sense of my special son, my unique son, which is, by the way, what only begotten means. That expression gets in the way of a lot of people. It simply means one of a kind, unique son, my special son. Jesus has a unique relationship to God. This goes to his identity. He is God's special, unique, only son in this way. Most agree that this expression that the Father uses here comes from Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, this is the Messiah speaking, He said to me, you are my son. The Jews of the first century understood that Psalm 2 was about the Messiah. So understand what happens here. God the Father audibly speaks from heaven. He identifies Jesus as His unique special son, and he uses language that is intentionally messianic. He adds, in you I am well pleased. That expression too comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 42.1 and following. It's one of the suffering servant passages about the Messiah. So God the Father also identified Jesus as the promised suffering servant of Isaiah, the one according to Isaiah 53 who would lay down his life for his sheep. Now, before we leave this verse, there's one important theological point. Although this passage is primarily about Jesus' baptism and God's divine affirmation of his divine identity, it also, at the same time, clearly teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. You perhaps have heard there are some people who will say, very few of them, and they're heretics, they're outside the Orthodox Christian faith, they are not Christian, but they will say, there is no such thing as the Trinity. This is, a, this is created by human beings. You know, some later generation came up with this idea. It's right here in this verse. Notice all three persons are present. They are all clearly represented as distinct. And yet at the same time, the Bible clearly teaches Old and New Testament multiple times that God is only one. Where does that leave you? It leaves you 
with there being only one true God eternally manifest in three distinct persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's right here. It's not derived from tradition. It's derived from a a genuine exegetical approach to the Scripture. Now, that's Jesus' baptism, and that's the Father's testimony. But there's an important question we haven't answered yet, and that is why. Why was Jesus baptized? Do you have any idea? I mean, if you profess to be a follower of Christ, if I marched you up here and put you behind this pulpit, could you explain in any cogent fashion why Jesus was baptized? Well, let's see if we can help that. There are three reasons. There are are other reasons, but let me give you the three primary reasons. Number one, it confirmed the identity of Jesus as Messiah and God's Son. It confirmed his identity. John identified him in his baptism as the promised Messiah. Read John chapter 1. John says, God told me when he sent me, when you baptize someone and the Holy Spirit comes down upon him like a dove and remains on him, that's the Messiah. And John saw that happen. And by the way, his whole generation considered John a, a holy man, a trustworthy witness. And John says, that's him. In fact, just a short time later, John 1.29 records, after he'd baptized Jesus, he saw Jesus walking by, and he pointed to all of his disciples, and he said, there he is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we don't just have John's testimony. We have the testimony of God the Father, who said, that is my Son, whom I love. And in another place, he says, listen to him. You know, there are, there are a lot of people who kind of kid themselves and say, you know, I, I'm attracted to Christianity, I'm attracted to Christ, but it's just not enough evidence for me to believe. I understand that you're tempted to believe that or to think that, but I want you to think of what it will be like someday to stand before God himself who spoke from the heavens in the face of witnesses and said, this is my son, listen to him. Try telling him there's not enough evidence. I plead with you today, hear the evidence, hear the call. There's really a call here. Do you understand that? There's an invitation to you to say, you've seen it. You've seen who he is. Read the Gospels. Repent of your sin. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. For what? For the forgiveness of your sins. That's my, that's my plea with you today. He is the only hope for forgiveness of sins. There's a second reason Jesus was baptized, and that is it fulfilled a perfect righteous life for his people. It fulfilled a perfect righteous life for his people. By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus obeyed the Father and he identified himself with sinners. In fact, this is the first public identification with those whose sins he would eventually bear. His obedience in being baptized was a part of that righteous life that would one day be imputed to believers in justification. Remember what Jesus told John back in Mark 3, or excuse me, Matthew 3, verse 15? He says, Permit it for now. Why? In order that we may fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness. You see, it was not for his own sake that he needed righteousness. It was for the sake of his people who needed righteousness. 
Throughout his entire life, including his baptism, Jesus did everything he did to accumulate a perfect record of human righteousness that would one day be credited to all those sinners who believed in him. You see, if you're a Christian, you don't just get the benefit of Jesus' death for you in which he paid the debt for your sin. You get the credit for his righteous life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the cross. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's a great exchange that happens in salvation. If you trust in Jesus Christ, if you repent and believe in him, then God does this great exchange. God credits every single one of your sins, every single thought, word, and act you have ever committed against God. He credits it to Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Christ pays the penalty for every single one of those sins. So there's no debt left for you. But then he does something else. He takes the entirety of Jesus' righteous life I mean, can you imagine? Never a sinful thought, never a sinful word, never a sinful act. He loved God perfectly every moment of his life. He loved others as he ought to love them without exception. And that entire 33 years of righteousness gets taken from Jesus' account and credited to your account. And from this point forward, God treats you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect life, just as he treated Christ on the cross as if he had lived your sinful life. That's the gospel. And that's what Jesus was doing in his baptism. Romans 5.19 says, through the obedience of one, that is, through the entire life of obedience of Jesus Christ, the many, all who trust in him, will be made righteous. That is, will be treated as, constituted as righteous because of his righteousness. There's a third reason for Jesus' baptism, and that, uh, that is it was repentance for his people. It was repentance for his people. Look at the context. Go back to verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, they were being baptized confessing their sins. Four verses later, verse 9, Jesus shows up and Jesus was baptized by John with the same baptism. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But look at the intervening verse. Look at verse 7. John says the Messiah is such that he wouldn't be worthy to be his lowest slave. So do you understand this? Think about this. Jesus was baptized with a baptism that had to do with sin, repentance, and forgiveness. But it wasn't his sin. He had none. It was ours. It was yours, Christian. Why was he baptized? It was part of his substitution. In his life, he substituted for us so that we get his righteousness. In his death, he substituted for us so that we get his atonement on the cross. He paid the full penalty in God's justice for every sin every believer has ever committed or ever will. So there's none left for us. And in his baptism... He provided a substitutionary repentance. Now, don't misunderstand. We are commanded to repent. We are to offer our sincere sorrow over our sins and a genuine commitment and resolve to change. God will accept nothing less. To be saved, we're commanded to repent and believe the gospel. Daily, as Christians, we're commanded to repent of our sins, confess them. 
When we come to the Lord's table, we're called again to confess our sins in true repentance. But although genuine, our repentance has never been thorough enough. Mine hasn't and yours hasn't. We find ourselves all too often confessing the same sins. Jesus was baptized with a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, not for him, but for us, so that God could accept our unworthy repentance when it comes from a sincere heart and genuine sorrow with a real desire to change, although still not worthy. Christ's worthiness is accepted in its place. In Christ, we have a complete Redeemer, a complete Savior. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that concludes our current series, Jesus' Baptism of Repentance. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.